Good afternoon and welcome to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen. Let's Talk is the program for the Christian layman, the Lutheran who believes but has questions. Well, in short, that program's designed exactly for me. Because, you know, there's a lot I don't understand. Not necessarily things that are soul-shaking, but it might just be something that's been bugging me for a bit. And I find that rather than getting into a deep theological discussion, sometimes a casual front porch style talk of the pastor is the best way to understanding. That's what this program is all about. And today's guest is Bill Swirla. He's the pastor at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. I have my questions, and I'm sure you have yours. You can send your questions by email at any time to letstalk at kfuo.org or call in during the program. If you're in the St. Louis area, that number is 314-821-0850. That includes Metro East. Or in the lower 48, anywhere, toll-free, 1-800-730-2727. Well, Bill, welcome back to the Front Porch. Hey, great to be on the porch, as always. Nice autumnal day out there, huh? Yeah, actually, it's very nice. You know, we had this, yeah? we had a terrible cold freeze earlier. It was kind oh, of, okay. Well, it's kind of sad because, you know, the leaves had just started to turn. We hadn't really hit the uh, the beautiful phase yet when all the leaves are really exploding yeah. in color. And then we had this snap cold freeze, and it killed all the leaves. So we didn't really get to see that, that wonderful autumn leaf turning thing that we always do. Yeah, that's a that's a delicate proposition. That has to all the variables have to line up. I, I was in Chicago last week to visit my mom and it looked just downright winter. I mean it was like ten degrees Ugh. and there was there were a few inches of snow on the ground, ice, you know, you had to watch where you're walking all over and and it was clear that it, well, a lot of the trees still had leaves on them because uh trees release a, an enzyme that causes the leaf to fall. They don't just blow off by mechanical action. The The tree actually releases the leaf. And uh, so the tree had been caught short. You know, the tree, the trees had this look like, what? You know, no, <laughs> not yet. Oh, too soon, too soon. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of a weird look. It was like fall meets winter in a head-on collision a little too early. So. Yeah, that's what <laughs> happened to us. So we had the, the terrible cold snap for about, uh, two three days. I mean, we we did have snow a fair a fair amount of it, and uh, several yeah. days, and the temperature didn't rise above freezing. We, on the other hand, are actually having some lovely fall. I do have some trees around on the property that turn, so I've got some birches in the front yard uh, that turn yellow, and they're they're doing it very beautifully, very slowly. And we had a big rain the other day, so it knocked some of the leaves off. But but they're really they're really doing it. Uh, it's really doing it quite slowly. And even my Japanese maples are are finding colors I didn't know they had in them. So uh-huh. it's 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 really quite nice. We we have a nice combination of uh, right now cool and also some early rain, which is very welcome in fire areas because that just oh, pretty yeah. much puts the damper on that action for the year but that was one of the advantages of living in palm springs where i was for 16 years because sand doesn't burn (laughs) yeah there's nothing to burn there (laughs) so bill there is something i did want to mention today uh i'm not sure this is theological but everything is theological you Uh, know know, when you talk to a pastor which is the whole premise of the porch right that's true you're talking to a pastor pastor can make anything theological that's what we do well you know there's 
there will be some occasionally a moment in life where you all always remember where you were and what you were doing. 9-11, for example, for you and me. Um, my parents used to talk about Pearl Harbor. They remembered exactly yes. where they were and what they were doing when they got yes. that news. And the first time that ever happened to me was exactly 56 years ago today. Uh-huh. And that's when President John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. That's right. That's right. How I, old were you at the I time was, that happened? I was 16 years old. I was in world history class, 10th grade. And I remember uh, suddenly the the uh, the intercom goes on in the classroom. And uh, no intro or anything. It was just suddenly talking about the president. And at first I thought it was a joke. I thought somebody had brought in a tape recorder and was playing it back. But then I yeah. I recognized the voice of the newscaster and realized that this was this was legit. Yeah, I re you're 10 years older than I am. So uh, I was six years old and uh -huh. in first grade. And I remember getting in trouble. I got in trouble. And I didn't I, I was not a troublesome kid. I'm more of a troublemaker and as an adult than I than I've ever been as a was a kid. I'm I tended to you know, being a firstborn son, not only does that predestine you to the clergy, but but in a it also makes you an authority pleaser. You like to please authority figures. So I, I didn't like getting in trouble, but it was inadvertent. Um the uh, teacher was listening to the radio, and she was, I think, scampering to get something on the television. We Televisions were optional equipment in uh, my grammar school days. and uh, But she was very distraught. She was upset. And uh, being six years old, you don't quite connect what's going on. And I was just kind of doing my six-year-old boy thing. And I guess I said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and I just got a tongue lashing for yeah. it. And uh, and then subsequently, then uh, the whole class was kind of apprised of what was happening, and we kind of listened in and, you know, took it in as best that a six-year-old can. But I do remember, uh, I remember my parents talking about this in great length and depth at the dinner table. I remember the funeral. Uh, and you know, it's the source of many, many, many iconic images mm -hmm. of American life in the 60s. But you're absolutely right. It is a culturally defining moment. You know, like Pearl Harbor was, like 9-11 was. Uh, the assassination of John Kennedy is, is, a, is, is culturally defining. You know, that was, um, I think, when the nation started to truly lose its innocence. Yeah, because that was... Assassinations of, of presidents that only if, happens if in not third its world innocence, countries. Yeah, if not if, if not its innocence, then its optimism. Ah. Because because you know Kennedy was kind of elected on a note of optimism. It was Camelot, you know, young handsome president, beautiful wife, uh, you know, gorgeous adorable children. This was this was you know America post war. This was America booming this this was truly america great you know mm -hmm. and and i think there was a mythology that that sort of it, it was like a symbolic mythology around kennedy um uh, we can all debate how good a president he was and you know i i sometimes say in my my political moments that it would have been interesting to see him go two terms because that that would be a would have been a greater evaluation of uh, Kennedy the president, but because he was assassinated first term, mm -hmm. uh, it cements his legacy in a different way, a much different way. And and it's like time is frozen uh, on this date fifty six years ago. 
in Dallas. It's like the the political life of America just came to a, a grinding halt right there. And so, yeah, I think we lost our political optimism. Uh, and and you know the subsequent events kind of play that out. We we tumbled into an ever deepening engagement in Vietnam, which utterly divided us and destroyed lives and really eroded all confidence in government and military. And I mean this is a disaster. Um, and it started with Kennedy, or Kennedy was was at the front end of that. But that's why I say it would have been interesting to see him serve eight years to see how that played out, because Lyndon Johnson got to play the rest of his hand. And we know and, how that ended. And it broke the man. The yep. man was broken. The country was broken. Everything was broken at that point. But it, it broke Johnson. Johnson was he was just a shell of a man when he was done playing out the Kennedy hand. So well, I, I remember I, I remember Johnson getting on the television and announcing that he was not going to run for a second term. Right. And you're well, right. And, I mean, he, he looked he looked shattered. He was. And and post uh, presidency, I mean, he he became a recluse. Uh, he had a drinking problem. He just basically just just, you know, retreated entirely from all semblance of public life. And uh and it was just this this incredible. Anyhow, you know, it was Vietnam. The the burden of Vietnam it was, I think, more than any a man could shoulder. But you know, it, it was, and, and it it's the inaugural event for the '60s, which is one of the most tumultuous periods of American history, modern American history, is the '60s. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 defining. I. I if I'm thinking, um, I would say that the only other event that is culturally defining at that level would be the landing on the moon in a positive way. Mm, yeah, and that I remember. I, yeah, that was kind of funny because I was uh, that that was that was that's a uh, summer of 1969, and uh, that was the year I dropped out of college and I was working at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis in the emergency room as the uh, I was the clerk who asked all the dumb questions before they treat them. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a television in the doctor's station, and they were broadcasting live the uh, Neil Armstrong getting out onto the uh, actual surface of the moon. And Bill, the patients were coming out of the out of the ER yes. room. <laughs> yeah, right. Dragging bandages, right. bleeding all over the place. It doesn't but, matter. Dragging their IVs and the whole did. thing. Got to see what's going on. I was at a White Sox game in Chicago, and I remember the news on the scoreboard, the eagle has landed mm -hmm. and there was this moment of stunned silence and then this prolonged two-minute standing ovation and then a a, a a solemn minute of silence for prayer you could pray in the public sphere back then and uh uh but it, this was this was i mean it was epic it really was uh for american culture it, it was um another one of those definitive moments and that was a kennedy dream i mean kennedy wanted to do that oh yeah and and he set it as a goal that we would put a man on the moon and he never got a chance to see that that dream lived out now you know you can back analyze what was behind that because he was involved in a very nasty cold war with with the soviet union darn near one hot under his watch yeah and 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 you know he had some unfortunateness with uh, cuba uh in, involved in that and you know so, some people i think i think it's it's a reasonable analysis that the 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 space race went hand in glove with the arms race and so you basically you basically try to drive the Soviet Union into a very expensive, very, very economically devastating uh, arms race and space race. 
and uh, all the while you bankrupt the country, which it, it did. I mean, uh, th- that's what led to the fall of the Soviet Union was um, it, it, that economy, that Soviet economy could not sustain an arms race and a space race no, and it, feed its people at the same time. Just couldn't do it. No, it couldn't. And, uh, but, you know, it so was, it, it might have been a strategic a move. You know, it might Kennedy might have been less visionary and more strategic. It's really hard to say. I think it's I I think it's a strategic move. I think it's 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 let's goad them into a space race, and uh, and and then it appeals to American pride and patriotism and everything else. Because let's face it, the the uh, man on the moon thing, you know, landing on the moon was exceedingly patriotic. American oh, flags so. all over the place. Whether they should be flapping or not is another question for another time, I suppose. But. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you can look at the presidency then. You know, JFK, as you pointed out, a very charismatic man. Oh, Extremely yeah. Extremely charismatic. I loved hearing his speeches. I still, every so often, I was Good still speaker. going to YouTube. You know, and- I, would, I would love to hear two speeches played today, today, mm-hmm. in American culture today, and see if we still agree. I would love to hear Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech on the mall, the I Have a Dream speech, uh-huh. which is, I consider, one of the finest pieces of rhetoric uh, in in American English, um, but but to test it to see are we still on that page? And I say no, we're not. I I I I, I think that King comes off sound. He's he's much more right of center than than we are today. Um, and Kennedy's speech of you know the I think it was an inaugural speech of you know ask not what you can do for yeah, what your country not, can yeah. do for you, but but you know to test that against you know current thinking. And see where Kennedy would would have fallen today in the political spectrum. Oh, he definitely would have been right of center, at least as we. Oh, as he'd we, be centrist right. I'm sure yeah. of it. I'm you know, sure. He, he was as hard on communism. He was a fiscal conservative. Yeah. Uh, so America. yeah, you know, this is it's interesting because these these events like this cause you to kind of look at the, you know, sort of the evolution of society. Where where is it going? And and and. Um, our reference points certainly change along the way, but yeah, the Kennedy. You want so today is the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, a very dark day of uh, in American history. It was, and uh, you know that was and that was one of the pivotal was affected. points. Whether you agreed with him or not, whether you voted Democrat or Republican mattered not. Everybody, I think, was rallied around this as a national tragedy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't see any. I don't remember anyone saying, oh, good, he's dead. You no. know, if that were to happen today, you know, if President Trump were to drop dead, I think it'd be some celebration. Yeah, be careful how you say that. But yeah, I mean, that's true. I, I, I can honestly envision there'd be demonstrations of glee in the streets, which is really mm-hmm. that. I mean, that that to me is, is a greater tragedy than anything. But this was a day of national mourning. It was. And and regardless of your political persuasion, uh, you were deeply and profoundly affected uh, by this. And and of course, you know, it has a legacy because when when important people die, John Kennedy, Princess Diana, you know, they can they cannot die ordinary deaths. They must die extraordinary deaths. See, and so uh, that's that's why I think that's one reason why it feeds a lot of conspiracy theories and stuff, mm-hmm. because it can't just be that simple because he is that great, or at least in the, the narrative, he's that great. Just like Diana can't Diana can't be the victim of just like a drunken car wreck. You know, it's no, 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 no. There's more yeah. to it than that. See, and, and so there's always that that's in our human nature to uh, great people must die greatly. 
Do we learn something from these these pivotal moments? I mean, from a theological point of view, from a Lutheran point of view, are we being taught <laughs> something? Oh, I think we're always being taught something. The question is, uh, are we taking notes and reflecting on what the teacher is saying? Um, you know, I, I think I think there you can you can approach it at many levels. Okay. Um, at one level, we're always, whenever a leader dies, and especially when a leader dies tragically or, or suddenly or unexpectedly, you know, we are constantly reminded of the psalm that says, trust not in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. Um, you know, in, in Old Testament Israel, in the northern kingdom, which is, was always a, that was always a rebel kingdom. Uh, that's the breakaway kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Judah. Judah had the firm line of succession to David, but but the northern kingdom, Israel, was was just a disaster, and they just had one assassination after another, one one you know bit of intrigue after another. So you never quite knew who was reigning, and and if he was too young, his mom was actually pulling the governmental strings. So it was really quite, quite a quite a mess. Um, but I think we're reminded that temporal government is temporal it's part of the temporal kingdom it it's on a time clock and uh, just as in the normal course of events our presidents are in office only four or eight years at the most uh, even that's not a sure thing and whether Lee Harvey Oswald was part of a greater conspiracy to get rid of Kennedy and I mean there are plausible arguments for that surely um, mm-hmm. And uh, or whether he acted alone out of some sort of motivation. I mean, he had a lot of personal things going on too that might have made him an enemy of uh, of of Kennedy. Um, we're reminded of how easily it, how easy it is to remove the king. Mm-hmm. He, you know, that's why the king always had a cupbearer, somebody to taste his wine before he drank, because you couldn't even trust your insiders. And uh, so temporal temporal authority is temporal. It, it it has a time stamp. It has an expiration date. We do not know, and we should not presume. And so um, I think that that gives us that should give us politically a bit of humility, and and a bit of uh, understanding of our utter dependence upon God for good government. Well, I think that's that's the point. I I, I think I'm trying to reach at uh, it. Those events, whether it's Pearl Harbor, 9-11, the Kennedy assassination, uh, they remind us of just how fragile we are when even the great and powerful can be can be brought down just in an, yeah. in an instant. Well, they're more of a target. I mean, you and I could drive around Dallas in a convertible and nobody's likely to be shooting at yeah, us. Yeah, we'd want to try it in some neighborhoods in St. Louis. Yeah, no, but, but, but I'm saying that, you know, obviously that's a planned thing. Yeah. And uh, we we since we don't presume as much today, uh, our public officials are <laughs> much more bulletproof today. You know, even the Pope learned his lesson. Uh, you know, who was it? John Paul II. Yeah, got, John Paul got, II. Yeah, got shot. So you know, it's it's it the the public the open public is not a safe place to be. Maybe that's another thing to to talk about or to look at is safety and the illusion of safety you know how's you know we we like to think we're safe we're like we like to think we can let our guard down when we're out in public but there's a reality um the world is not safe no it's not and this was a lesson i learned during my reporter days i mean i i honestly don't know how many corpses i saw i stopped counting mm. after a hundred and most of them 
were sudden deaths. People just were not expecting this to happen. They were just living right. their lives, and then something. Boom, yeah. That's And, and young and old, it was just... So... I, I think another thought, maybe it's not theological, but there, yeah, I think that the assassination, and I remember being very impressed by this when I was a small child, um, that that our form of government, our constitutional government, is 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 amazing, even in circumstances like this. I remember Lyndon Johnson being sworn into office on the airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, even though I was a kid and I hadn't yet taken, you know, what, fifth grade civics class. I don't know if they still teach that, but, you know, but we learned we had to memorize parts of the Constitution. Oh, yeah, I had and to do we, that, we too. We studied, we read the whole Constitution. But even in first grade, before we could read all that stuff, I remember being really impressed how a leader could could be assassinated and then a new leader is put in without so much as a blink. It's like you knew who was next. You swore him in. You knew who was supposed to do it. The procedure was there. And though the country was in great turmoil and grief, there was an undercurrent of order. You know, we're not a banana republic. We don't have, like, rioting in the streets. We didn't then. Today, I can't guarantee that. But, but, uh, but you know, this is constitutional government at its finest. And so in many ways, it was our darkest hour and our finest hour constitutionally speaking well i remember um, the assassination was on a friday and that sunday was a walther league meeting ah the old walther league yeah oh i was yeah. very active in the league that's a, that was just a euphemism for youth group by then yeah. but but nonetheless it you know there was a those a major and you know just side note the uh, walther league was not missouri synod now that i didn't know it was synodical conference Synodical conference being composed of the Little Norwegian Synod, the Wisconsin Synod, the Missouri uh, Synod. So, just like TLH, the first the, the the 1941 hymnal is not a product of the Missouri Synod; it's a product of the Synodical Conference. Uh, See, and and so one of the one of the reasons Walter League kind of fell apart was when the Synodical Conference fell apart in the 60s. Then the Walter League kind of fell apart along with it. Well, yeah, no, no, it makes sense because I was at I was at the. Uh, the following year in 64, I was at the uh, the big Walter League convention out in Lake Tahoe, California. And uh, one of the major groups there were the Canadians, you know, who were not, uh, Mar- yeah. Yeah, who were not Missouri Synod. Right, right, right. Well, this was a synodical conference thing. And they used to do uh, uh, conferences, big, you know, kind of like, not, not, not like the, not like the youth convention today so much as more like kind of like a higher things conference. Uh, my sister-in-law, who's a little older, she remembers the last, um, of the Walther Lee conferences. And I think it was at Purdue University or one, one of the, one on the campus of one of the colleges. Mm. So, well, yeah. yeah. Well, I remember there was, um, there was talk within the church, uh, of canceling that meeting. You know the uh, and the weekend of the assassination. Oh yeah! And our youth director, well, a wonderful lady by the name of Boots Spano. Uh, Boots. Boots. B o o t s. Boots Spano. Nice. Boots. Lovely lady. I, I always. Is that her actual name, or does somebody just kind of append that name? To uh, Boots. That's all we ever called her. Was Boots. Yeah. <laughs> and she had decided that this was a, a good opportunity to bring these kids together and, and decompress and talk about what was going on. Good for her. And she was outstanding. I mean, I, as I say, I always have a, one, I have a warm spot wherever she is now, whatever she's doing. Mm. 
You know, it, you made me think of something that I saw in a, it was kind of a video course. It was a kind of a continuing education course for, for preachers. And it was on this, the, you know, the art of preaching. And, and the discussion was about current events and how much uh, does one allow current events to sort of shape what is said in the pulpit. And the usual Lutheran answer is not too much, you know, that we're driven by the text and, and whatnot. But this one uh, speaker made a really interesting point, is, and he remembered the Sunday after Kennedy was assassinated, okay, mm -hmm. so the Sunday that followed. And he said there are basically two kinds of pulpits. There were pulpits where uh, this was this was addressed in some way, you know, woven into the assigned readings. And let's face it, a good preacher can weave anything into any reading. So, but but it was woven into the readings. It was mentioned in some significant way. It was addressed pastorally from the pulpit. And there were pulpits that you wouldn't even know it had happened. Yeah. It's funny because I don't remember the sermon that Sunday. But I, I don't either. But I vividly remember that the Walter League meeting. Yeah, but uh, so for on, and along those lines, see, I would say good on boots because because she recognized that this is something that needs to be discussed also at the theological faith level. Mm -hmm. And and with kids especially, and so so that so she gets props. Boots gets yeah. props for that, and that's what she did. You know, and and you know, women's are resented. We've got these limitations on who can do what but boy she just really connected with the group she knew exactly what we were feeling and well you know and to say you know to to piggyback on the word misery center you know we're lutherans and so we understand the distinction of ordos the the, the distinction of the church and mm -hmm. government and home and yet we don't believe in their separation as such too and so um you know i we we need to be cognizant of what's going on in the temporal order of civil society and when society becomes uncivil and and uh, we need to be talking about it in the church as well and that includes you know all the issues that are in play but when the leader is assassinated that that has to come up at some in some meaningful way and obviously of course within the prayers of the church as well hmm. Well, Bill, it's uh, that time for us to take a bit of a break here. But, a uh, break. We've got some more things to talk about, maybe a little bit brighter and more fun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll be back. Anything, in a, whatever you want. You got it. We'll be back in a few minutes. type of person who loves their community and wants it to be the best it can be? Now it's easier than ever to do your part. Go to RecycleMo.com to see just how easy it is to recycle the right way. Or if you already recycle and want to be as efficient as possible, RecycleMo.com can tell you what should and should not be recycled in your area. Become part of the clean recycling movement today. It's the right thing to do. Sponsored by the Missouri Department of Natural Resources. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU. 
inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance here on Worldwide KFUO. Coming up on the next MOA weekend program, I'm going to be sharing thoughts about heaven. What is known about it? What is not known? What do you and I have to anticipate there? That's heaven on the next MOA weekend. Coming up this weekend at 7.45 a.m. Central Daylight Time here on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. What do the giant redwoods of the Pacific Coast have to do with early missionary efforts to reach Native Americans? The Cherokee New Testament, now on display at Museum of the Bible, was translated in the 1830s by missionaries and Cherokee Christians. The project was only possible because of the Cherokee syllabary developed by George Gist, who was raised by his Cherokee mother. Believing a written language was the secret to independence, he created a system of symbols representing every sound in the Cherokee spoken language. The printed language caught on and was used to translate the Cherokee Bible. In appreciation for his work, California's giant redwoods were named after George Gist, whose Cherokee name was Sequoia. Engage with the Bible, this book of all books. Discover its impact on history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back. You're listening to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. Today's pastor is Bill Swirla from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. If you want to get into the conversation, email us at letstalk at kfuo.org. Or call in if you're in the St. Louis area. That's 314-8210-850. Or anywhere in the lower 48, you can call in toll-free at 1-800-730-2727. Well, Bill, that's enough gloom and doom. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Moving right along. <laughs> we are getting ready here at the IC for Thanksgiving. And That's International Center for those who don't have the uh, cue card in front of them. I beg your pardon. I should have made that clear. <laughs> and, you know, Thanksgiving is on is on Thursday. And, well, we've actually got both Thursday and Friday are, are official holidays for the, uh, for, the, for the International Center. Which means hey. next year I've got to squeeze five days of work into three days. That's but, how that works. Yeah. <laughs> no, nobody said it would be easy, okay? <laughs> no, no, no. But what the heck, it's working for the church, I tell myself. Um, and it is. I, I, I really do enjoy my work. I've been blessed that way. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to talk about is Thanksgiving. 
Oh, Thanksgiving. Yes, yes, yes. yes. It used to be the start of the holiday season, but it's been usurped by Halloween. And you notice how you notice how Black Friday used to be the Friday after Thanksgiving? Yeah. Now it's every Friday after Halloween. <laughs> you know, my wife demanded that we put up a Christmas tree last night. Yeah, well, that's going to happen. Yeah, but, and uh, we gotta... is, it, is it fake or real? It, ours is fake. We've well, had then you can for, do it. We've had real for a long time, but yeah, you can. We do. We're still we're still realists. We we still put up the reel, and uh, um, I have relaxed. I used to be kind of like very firm on this, and you know, not until at least the fourth week of Advent, and uh, and so. But then we realized, hey, you know, we get busy around Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and and it's kind of a bummer because sometimes we go away after Christmas, mm. and so now you go through all this work, you set up a tree, and these real trees are not cheap. No, they aren't. And so you set up, you set up this tree, you decorate it, you enjoy it for a day or two. Then you go out of town, you come back, it's all dried out. You throw it on the curb, you're done. So, so I decided I want to get, I want to get my money's worth out of this noble fur. See, so I set it up kind of once December hits, that tree's going up. So, well, we've got yeah. uh, two trees here in the lobby at the International Center. No, yeah. now even as we speak. Yeah, even as we speak. They so you've gone with the Halloween tradition, then. So so it yeah. all starts with Halloween. Hey, if Lexus is putting out those winter sale commercials for their high end cars, you know, with the the snow and the jingle bells and all of this, mm -hmm. you can put up your tree. <laughs> okay. You have cultural permission. <laughs> well, there's a, a media. Uh, there's a media uh, board on the internet I follow with you know local media people, and there's a running bet on which station in the St. Louis area is going to start doing Christmas music. Ah, uh, oh yeah. Well, we have we have uh, stations that are already doing twenty four seven Christmas music. Yeah, uh, I listen. Yeah, you know, I I don't mind. Yeah. I, I see. <laughs> the thing is that I live in two worlds. These that they don't have to overlap. So you know, culturally, hey, if we want to, I like Christmas. Christmas is nice. Everything looks nice and. And stuff, and uh, but in church it's going to be Advent, okay? So we can we can do both. It's, it's okay. Well, that's true. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Christmas is down the road. We're, yeah. What's what's right up here in the in the front Thanks. of us is Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. Wow. and uh, as wonderful a holiday as it is, and as enjoyable as it is, and I will confess, it's always been my favorite holiday. It is celebrating gluttony. <laughs> well, if Thanksgiving celebrates gluttony, then secular Christmas celebrates uh, greed and acquisition. Okay, so we're well. Can we, as good Lutherans, become gluttons? <laughs> See, that means that during the holiday season, you will have like touched. You've checked off two of the seven deadly sins right mm -hmm. there: greed and gluttony. Wow. And if you're not careful, you might knock off a few of the others. Too. Oh yeah. So, yeah, it it can be gluttonous. I mean, all the all the um, all the uh, trappings. You know, the who is that guy? Who is that guy that that did the illustrator? The uh, oh man, name escapes me. He, I mean, he's the guy who invented the Thanksgiving turkey. Oh, you're not talking. Oh, you're Norman not Rockwell. Oh, okay. Yeah, everybody wants a Norman Rockwell turkey, and anybody who knows how to cook knows you can't cook a turkey to that kind of perfection and not have half of it dried out and half of it undercooked. It's just not. It's just not going to work. You never had a turkey that was prepared by my great aunt Nina. Uh, oh yeah, Aunt Nina had it. She had it down. Oh my gosh, 
she was a little tiny southern town in Illinois, and she'd come over to our house on Thanksgiving, kick my mother out of the kitchen, which was, my mother was very happy about that. She didn't like cooking. And Aunt Nina would take it over, and I got to tell you, the things that she came up with were incredible. Good. Well, but did she come up with a good turkey? Uh, she would uh, She would tell us what turkey to get her. Yeah, but did the turkey come out good? I mean, was the was the breast meat moist? Oh, it was, was incredible. The, was the dark meat succulent and done? And the 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 skin was crispy and the, the oh, and crispy oh, skin too. Well, How did oh. she do it in the oven? Yeah, she did it in the oven. She did okay. it in the oven. See, some of this is just dumb luck because uh, you know back in the day they didn't have convection ovens and ovens all have hot spots, cold spots. And if you're if you're wise, like your aunt probably was, you know how to read your oven. And so you know how to get that bird just located just right. And to the to the casual observer, this seems kind of like black magic. But in reality, there's a deep knowledge as to where the hot and the less hot parts of your oven are. Mm. And so you arrange the bird appropriately. Anybody who does any serious grilling knows how this works because you're always kind of arranging pieces closer to the heat source away from the heat source that kind of thing so yeah, yeah. well we're this thanksgiving my wife and i are going over to one of her son's house and actually all the sons will be gathering there uh and they're going to do a deep fried turkey oh yeah i had those before those are yeah. wonderful well deep fried anything is wonderful so so it's it's going to come out and and it's gonna it's gonna be succulent and and there's an element of danger. There, there's yeah. lots of YouTube on great fires from from uh, from deep fried turkey. Are they gonna brine it? Oh yes, oh yeah, you definitely. Gotta, you yeah. gotta brine. It'll be brine brined. Or, unless the bird's been shot up. Don't don't brine a shot up <laughs> turkey. Okay, you'll be really sorry, and your 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 blood pressure is gonna go through the roof. Oh yeah, because um, it just permeate. It'll be a salt bomb. No, you don't want to do that. But but yeah, brine brine your turkey and be careful. Have a fire extinguisher around and some asbestos. I guess you can't do asbestos, but some heat proof gloves because I mean th things can get out of control in this situation really fast. But um, we're doing smoked. My my brother, at whose house we celebrate, uh, has. Settled in on smoked turkey, and oh, those it is are wonderful. Delicious. I've had those. Now you don't get the crispy skin like you get with the fried, but boy, do you get depth of flavor. Mm -hmm. And because it's it's cooked low and slow, everything kind of evens out. It's really, really, really nice. It's good. But you know, getting back to the original point, we are doing one of the seven deadly sins. We are engaging in the sin of gluttony. Which is an interesting sin. I once preached a Lenten series on the seven deadly sins and kind of how to commit them. And I didn't, you know, <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's but, supposed to be a warning, but, not but a how-to guide. Gluttony is interesting <laughs> because, because normally when we say gluttony, we are thinking eating too much. Okay, eating beyond what is necessary. And uh, that is true. That's, that's the fourth kind of gluttony. Um, it's called nimus in, in the Latin. So that's fourth kind. But it's not the only kind. There are five kinds of gluttony. Five kinds of gluttony? Yes, yes. And, and this, this comes from Pope Gregory I, whom Luther admired. He called him the last great bishop of Rome and the first pope. But uh, Pope Gregory, from which we get Gregorian chant, too, um, he, uh, he, he, he parsed it out five different ways. First... Um, eating before the time of in, before meal time, so snacking or the way or what the Italians might call aperitivo, 
Uh, in, in other words, you should sit down, eat your meal, and that be done with that. But kind of like eating in preparation to eating, that was gluttony. Well, I'm guilty so, of that. Yeah, yeah, so am I. Because uh, I like I like I like the Italian four course kind of dinner and 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 in my brother's house the eating starts early and ends late. I mean it's just oh, you know it ends with everybody just falling asleep in the living on the living room floor. It's really a pathetic <laughs> sight. But uh, second, eating delicacies and and a high quality of food in order to um, gratify the sense of taste. Now this is this is where I. This is where I'm on really dangerous ground here because I am a foodie, you know. So, but eating delicacies, kind of reminiscent of uh, the the Israelites complaining about all the wonderful food they had in Egypt, and now all they get to eat is this 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 quail and manna, you know. Um, so, uh, the third kind is um, eating food that's fancy, eating too fancy, elaborately prepared, seasoned, or luxurious in some way. See, and uh, and then the fourth is eating too much, which we think about. And then the fifth is eating too eagerly. Oh, gee, I'm definitely yeah. guilty. Eagerly, you know, which, you know, they say of the people in Bologna, they wake up and the first question on their mind is, what will we eat? <laughs> See, and so... <laughs> And and I relate. I love that, you know. And I, I think about that when I wake up in the morning because I make breakfast. I'm thinking, what what am I going to make for breakfast this morning? And, and I, I need to point out that here at the International Center, we have a very very good cafeteria here, a wonderful vendor. And uh, what happens is we've got our intranet as well as internet, and uh, we're supposed to look at it every day to see what what announcements are being made. And the folks from HR say that the one site on the internet that is most heavily visited is the cafeteria's <laughs> menu. The menu for the day. Right. Yeah, right. So there's at least like two, maybe three forms of gluttony being just trampled <laughs> right there with that little inter internet menu. You know, the thing is, um, we, we can kind of laugh at that. And, and, and Aquinas also um, uh, picked up on that, repeated it, and kind of refined it as only Thomas Aquinas could do. Uh, but they were very, very influenced by the the ascetics, and uh, and the ascetics obviously were into a lot of um, deprivation of the flesh and the pleasures of the flesh and the pursuit of the inner life. And uh, you know, I'm not going to diminish any of that um, because underneath all of that, and I think part of our problem is we're so used to this that we kind of chuckle at it. But it's kind of like coveting. You know, coveting occupies two commandments, 9 and 10, but we don't think anything of it because that's kind of what you do in the holiday season. You covet that new Lexus, right? Or whatever whatever they say you're supposed to buy. Mm -hmm. So coveting is kind of an American way of life for us, and unfortunately then we diminish the sinful aspect of it, and that is the idolatrous heart that does not rest with the gifts that God gives. But the same with gluttony. You know, what underlies all of this is idolatry. And it's a reminder that anything that brings us pleasure can also become an idol and bring us pain and destruction. You had to ruin it for me. I did. But it's my job. I'm a pastor. Okay, so I have to kind of be this big downer for the holidays. Yeah, but, that's the problem but, about being a Lutheran. If you if you're having fun, you know you're you're feeling guilty. No, that's being a pietist. No, oh, okay. No, no, it's not being a Lutheran. But you know, here's the thing: is that on the one hand, you can give thanks to God for His manifold gifts and for the bounties of his goodness, which, you know, God gave us a nose pointed down toward our mouth. God gave us elaborate senses of taste. 
you know, not just to avoid poisonous stuff, but to actually enjoy the gifts that he gives us, okay? And, and so these things are, and so enjoyment is not sinful, but when that becomes the end in itself and not, not uh, simply another predicate of praise, then we've got a problem. And so we're kind of just, it's just a little warning sign, a speed bump uh, on your way to your third helping, you know, the, the says, you know, it's like the Augustinians used to say of wine, you know, raise a glass of wine to honor God and then forego the second glass in order to spite the devil, see, you know, or yeah. to put the devil in his place. And well, you so, know, of course, Luther had been a um, Augustinian, but got out. Yeah. Well, and the Augustinians enjoyed food, and they, they made good wine. But, you know, and that's where I think our kind of like our notion of moderation comes in, too. Um, and all the while recognizing, and let's be honest, I mean, no matter what we do, no matter how well we do it, we can never say it's without sin. So even when you try to have a day of thanksgiving to God for all the gifts that one receives without any merit or worthiness in us, that thanksgiving will never be without sin. Yeah. You know, because we're sinners doing it. When sinners give thanks, there's always going to be sin. It's always going to be some sinful, greasy fingerprints on yeah. it. Well, Bill, we've got a caller, James from St. Louis. James, you're on the air. What's going on? Hello, James. Hey. Hey, it's good to hear from uh, you, Pastor, and uh, good to hear you again, moderator. Uh, we, we, we emailed uh, a few questions in. I don't know if you received them, but I'm going to ask specifically uh, two of those uh, questions that we sent in. Did you receive the questions that we emailed in? Actually, yeah, I'm looking at them right now. Okay. Well, the two specifically uh, that they wanted me to call in on, uh, and you can address all, all four if you have time. Uh, we'd like to know how did uh, transcendentalism impact Christianity at large and Lutheranism specifically? And what is confessionalism and neo-Lutheranism? Hmm. And uh, I'll hang up and listen. Well, thank you, James. appreciate that. Well, I got to tell you, Bill, I'm... You're the moderator. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really thought of any link between transnationalism and... Well, actually, I no, have. Transcendentalism. I beg your I, pardon. I heard, I heard him say transcendentalism. You're right, and he wrote transnationalism on the email. Okay, but I guess well, that's, that's what he meant. Well, that's a different question, yeah. then. So that well, gives us license to defer yeah. that one. Next. <laughs> okay, the next one is, what is confessionalism and neo-Lutheranism? Neo-Lutheranism? Neo. Neo, okay. Yeah. All right, so um, I don't know. I mean, it depends who's using the labels. Uh, confessionalism. You know, I'm always leery about isms because isms are kind of like they're little labels, tag labels for ideologies. So when something goes into an ism, there's a danger that it's gone into ideology. Mm. But that's a, that's maybe a topic for another time. Yeah, ideology let's take, let's, as opposed to as opposed to theology. I understand. No, ideology as opposed to just a good idea. Oh, okay? okay, so, <laughs> but the idea here is that um, all Christ, Christianity is confessional by nature. That what you believe with your heart, you confess with your lips, and what you confess with your lips, you you write down. 
so that uh, posterity will know what you confessed with your lips and take up the same confession. You know, there's this deposit of the faith, the faith once delivered to the saints. In some ways, the New Testament itself is a confessional document. It's the confession of the apostles, the memoirs of the apostles and evangelists of what they heard and saw and believed and taught and confessed uh, in the first century. So, you know, that that's, that's a confession. Uh, we Lutherans are confessional because we draw our identity not from our heritage, not from our ethnic background, uh, not from any uh, church body alliance, but because the Lutheran confessions are our confession. So the, the Book of Concord and the, the confessional documents contained therein uh, summarize what we believe, teach, and confess according to the scriptures. Yep. See, so that's confessional. Uh, neo, neo means new, uh, and anytime there's a neo, I'm always a little suspect uh, because what was wrong with the old? Yep. Uh, and neo, that could be anything depending on who's pinning that label. Um, I would guess that it may very well represent a form of Lutheran theology that seeks to go beyond the confessions, the Book of Concord of 1580. And so, you know, just like there was at the time of Bart, you know, a neo-Orthodoxy, that's kind of a new look on Orthodoxy or a new way of expressing Orthodoxy, Uh, there very well may be a kind of a neo-Lutheranism that says, ah, you know, that... 1580 stuff was good for the 16th century, but we're living in the 21st century, and we need a new Lutheranism. That's what ELCA is doing. Yeah, in, if if that's how it's being used, then then I think what we might call the more quote unquote liberal forms of Lutheran or whatever um, could be considered a kind of neo Lutheranism. In other words, trying to be trying to continue in that stream of Lutheran thought, whatever that means, and and uh, and being relevant to today's issues and topics, uh, uh, hopefully having learned from the past, although that's always kind of an open discussion. So um, the transcendentalism question, that would take a little bit more thought and research and time than we have, I think. <laughs> <laughs> What does that have to do with Thanksgiving? I don't I know. I don't know. <laughs> um, Getting back to gluttony. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, Thanksgiving is a strange holiday, too. Um, it really doesn't, our Thanksgiving does not go back to pilgrims uh, and colonial America, but to Lincoln and post-war reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, yeah, and in a sense, if you ever read Lincoln's uh, Thanksgiving proclamations, uh, you know, we're talking about past presidents in the first half hour, mm-hmm. read Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation, his call to the nation to repent. And it had nothing to do with feasting. It had nothing to do with families. It had to do with uh, thanking God that he didn't just utterly destroy us and and to repent of everything that had gone on in the Civil War. Now, I mean, you know, depending on what side you're on, we can... We can <laughs> We can have a discussion, I'm sure. Well, the Civil but, War but, darn near did destroy us. I mean, we're yes. still feeling the scars of it today. That's right. And and uh, but but to have a president call upon the people to give thanks to God 
and to, you know, to gather, whether in the home or in the churches, you know, today this would cause apoplexy. There, there would be like rioting in the streets if, 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 if our current president were to get on TV and say, you know, we, we need to all, you know, get together and give thanks to God for, for this and that and, and, you know, be in church on Sunday or at least be around your table and before you eat, you know, pray repentantly, acknowledging our sinfulness. They go nuts. I mean, people people would go nuts in all sectors. Yeah, they would. <laughs> but that was bonkers. another. It was another time in our in our in our culture in our country. Um, but it is a, it is a day of Thanksgiving. It's not uniquely Christian. Uh, Christians know that it's meat right and salutary. That at all times and in all places we should give thanks uh, to the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, our services are Eucharistic. They are services of thanksgiving. And, uh, and, you know, the Christian habit is to con, is to pray a prayer of thanksgiving before and after every meal. So, but I think it's, it, it is a national good. It's a good and salutary practice, uh, for us as a people and for us as Christians to, to give thanks on behalf of the whole nation. It's kind of our priesthood. You know, our priesthood is to intercede, to pray to God on behalf of all and so on behalf of all we give thanks to god for uh you know all the blessings and benefits of our nation and and the bounties which all come without any merit or worthiness in us hmm. well like the um during the absolution of, of a church uh, of a church service where the uh, pastor gets up and, and announces through the authority of god you know that, that he announces the forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the same thing. Is that uh, again we're we're talking about? Uh, excuse me. Uh, we're talking about. Um, oh, what's what's this? what am I saying here? I'm trying. You're having one of those moments because you're ten years older than I am. So <laughs> I know the senior moments we call them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where you're going, Kip. I have no idea where you're going with that, but I can rescue you if you want to be rescued. Please do. Please okay, do. Yeah. So, you know, I Thanksgiving is, as I said, an act of priesthood. You know, the the priesthood of the baptized believing in Christ, and and the primary work of a priest is prayer. And so our our prayers of thanksgiving, our intercessions for kings and rulers and all who are in authority, whether you voted for that person or not, mm -hmm. uh, that is our that is our Christian duty as as citizens uh, in whatever country we live in. And so so thanksgiving for us is kind of a no brainer. And it's one where I think we really ought to take the lead because we are a Eucharistic people. We are a Thanksgiving people. And this is not to exclude the great family meal and the turkey, however you prepare it. Um, that to, to enjoy the gifts of God with hearts filled with thanksgiving, to consecrate the table by the word of God and prayer is to, this is, this is, this is who we are. This is, this is our priesthood. You know, to consecrate that table by the word of God and prayers. So don't just shoot off a quick prayer. So, you know, say a psalm, sing a hymn, and uh, enjoy your turkey or whatever. Well, we do uh, we do that. Uh, my wife's family are all Catholic, so I've got to... They're okay. Yeah. They invented those deadly sins, man. <laughs> that's true. Tell them you're violating <laughs> I five... I should point that out to hey, them. Hey, look, yeah. Oh, oh, oh that's, that'd be fun. Let's, let's talk about the five kinds of gluttony <laughs> and see how many this meal actually violates. You're really trying to get me divorced, aren't you? 
<laughs> no, I'm just I'm just giving you intriguing things to speak to talk about at the table. Always be entertaining at the table. Oh, okay. I'll remember that. <laughs> they won't invite you back next year, but, you know, you're somewhere else. Well, Bill, we're about out of time here. I want to thank you again for joining me on the program. and we had It some... is always fun on the porch. It is. It is. And, you know, that's, that's part of the thing to remember is that we do have fun. You know, this, this, we're Lutherans. We sing. We dance. We drink. We enjoy. We dance? Well, yeah, we, just so long as we don't. People don't see us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bill, thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. Peace be with you. You've been listening to The Pastor Is In, a weekly chance to chat with a pastor. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting. The Pastor is in on Worldwide KFUO.